Amen and amen. Good morning, church. Take your Bibles, if you would, open up once again to Acts chapter 21. Book of Acts again, this time chapter 21. Uh, My name is Travis Bond. I serve as the senior pastor here, and I'm grateful to do so. I'm also a recovering Survivor fan. Um, I don't know how many of you watched, but I I honestly haven't seen an episode in years and years, but in our previous church, there was a whole group of us, a bunch of the elders, their wives, and then a few others, and we would get together every single season premiere, every single uh, uh, season, and, um, and we'd pick our horse. And no matter, no matter what your person did, and there were some really awful people on that show, you had to support them through the entire season. And then whoever, uh, you know, whoever's person won or got the closest to winning, we all got together again for the series finale. And there would be food and there would be a trophy. And it was, it was great fun. And so the one that sticks in my memory is 2007 Survivor China, although I had to look it up on Google to get some of the details. Um, But there was a contestant that season whose name was Leslie Neese. Um, She now lives in, or did live in Charlotte, Christ follower, um, Christian radio talk show uh, host, um, very first day of Survivor. Contestants board a train um, in downtown Shanghai. They travel by train, then truck. They go to a Buddhist temple where they are invited to participate in a traditional Buddhist ceremony. The host of the show claims to the contestants that this ceremony is non-religious in nature. Nevertheless, partway through the event, Leslie Neese, this Christian from Charlotte, determines that she cannot in good conscience continue to participate, and she absents herself from the Buddhist ceremony. She walks out of it. So what do you think? Based on what the producers said, was this lady wise or unwise to walk out of that? Or maybe a better question, more to the point, and I want you to be honest with me now, um, do you think that if you were just starting a game with a million dollars at stake, and you knew from all the previous seasons that typically the people who do something unusual or stand out early are the people who get voted out early, would you have been inclined to walk out of that ceremony? I was thinking about it this week, and I I think if I polled this congregation, I suspect that we would have a wide swath of opinions and rationale for those opinions here this morning. Certainly, we would have a number of folks who would respond, I think, Pastor Trav, we ought not kneel no matter what in any ceremony for anyone aside from Jesus. Probably, we would also have some folks say, yeah, but I mean, they were specifically told that it wasn't religious in nature. Yeah, but, you know, it certainly felt religious. I realize uh, in the grand scheme of things, Survivor is just a game show. Um, But I think that this scene, the reason it's stuck in my head, and it was years ago, 
think the reason that it's stuck in my head is because it illustrates a timeless truth that being a Christian and trying to think Christianly and act Christianly can sometimes be very complicated. Christianity gets complicated. Over the course of our life, not every day, probably not even every month, but from time to time, events will arise, moral, ethical, practical, that challenge our wisdom. Situations where the right way isn't always the obvious way. And if you haven't guessed yet, um, this morning's text presents exactly that kind of issue. Um, Last week, we reached the end of Paul's third missionary journey uh, uh, against the advice of his friends. Paul, you recall, felt compelled by the Spirit to continue on to Jerusalem. And so that's where we're going to pick up the narrative this morning. We're in Acts 21. We're beginning at the 17th verse. uh, And I want you to hear now the very word of the Lord. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Thus ends the reading of God's word. So reading uh, these ten verses, we are now reminded that while we firmly believe that all portions of the Bible are equally inspired, we can also affirm not all portions of the Bible are equally inspiring. (laughs) Because if you think about it, what we have this morning as the snow begins to roll in is, you know, a few hundred people over the course of two services, I guess, uh, bright intelligent, um, successful folks who have determined that we are all going to gather together in this room over the course of these services. We're going to open up our Bibles and we are now going to spend 30 minutes studying how Paul paid for the haircut of four men he did not know. 
If you were paying attention, that's what this passage is about. Paul paying for the haircut of four men that he did not know. And so we have to ask ourselves, what possible relevance could this have in the midst of Supreme Court picks? And the Patriots having a wonderful uh, blowout, comeback Super Bowl against the Falcons. What possible relevance could this have when, when we also are dealing with an immigration ban and, and, and Betsy De, DeVos and, and, all, and the whole thing? Um, are, these, are these 10 verses really all that relevant in the 21st century to the Christian life? You, you will probably not be surprised to hear me respond, yes, <laughs> I think they are relevant. Although I'll also be honest with you, um, I, do, I do read these books before I preach them. Uh, <laughs> and this is the one I've been nervous about for, for a long time. Um, I, I was like a first year preacher this week. The amount of time that I spent studying this text. And still I stand on Sunday morning and it's foggy to me more than they usually are after trying to do diligent study. Um, So we're going to do what we can with it, uh, but I stand before you as a man who does not know everything that I wish I could know. Um, I am going to give you three handholds to try and help us as we move along through the text. Uh, Community, concern, and compromise. We're going to have to do more work maybe than usual this morning, but that's our handholds. Community, concern, and compromise. Uh, quick review, book of Acts records how many of Paul's total missionary trips? Three. He went on four. It, reco- it covers three. Um, at the end of each one of them, Paul pays a visit to Jerusalem. You can look that up yourself in Acts 15, 18, and now 21. So this time, he goes to Jerusalem, having been gladly received, verse 17. Paul goes to see James and the elders. This is not James the apostle. Uh, you recall he was martyred some 15 years prior, run through with a sword because of his faith in Christ. This here is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who has risen to become one of the pillars of the Jerusalem church. The Jerusalem church, by the way, is no longer led by the apostles. They have uh, largely scattered, carrying the gospel all over the known world. And so the local church leadership has transitioned to the leadership of elders. Um, uh, I don't know how many elders there were. It doesn't say. It does tell us that the church itself numbered in the thousands. So quite possibly this was a large number of elders. At least 40 or 50 is the picture in my own head, although I don't really know if that's, that's accurate. Um, regardless, however many they were in the room, it's in the presence of James and all of these elders that Paul now reports, verse 19, all that God had done among the Gentiles. And I think that this would have been a wonderful time of Christian community, celebrating, right, as the body of Christ, the work of Christ. Um, It says Paul, you know, in some of your translations, in detail, I think in the ESV, one by one, he he just kind of gives it all to them. Certainly all of the the highlights of the trip, you know, he would have told them about the seven sons of Sceva, you remember that, and the naked guys just running around town, that certainly would have made the list. He would have told him about um, the silversmith riot in Ephesus um, and how there was a riot because Christians had become Christians and were now living 
Christian Lee, and it was impacting the economy. He would have maybe in a, like a self-deprecating way, he would have told him about the, the guy that he put to sleep by a sermon in Troas, and then the guy fell out of a window, but he was okay. It all turned out all right, and probably one of the elders would have stuck up his hand at this point and said, you know, Paul, you do tend to preach quite a while. <laughs> and it, they would have had a good laugh, and it, it, it would have Christian community. I mean, that's the scene that's, that's painted for us here. Um, and then when the whole report was over, verse 20, they glorified God. James and the elders rejoiced over what Paul and the missionary team had accomplished. And I think it, you know, it's really not natural to respond with joy to someone else's success. It's not natural to respond with joy to someone else's success. For instance, Sarah and I have to regularly remind our own children, hey, a compliment to your sister is not an insult to you. (laughs) And some of us still trying to learn that as a grown-up, right? A compliment to someone else is not an insult to you. Are you willing to, to rejoice when someone hits the ball further? Are you willing to rejoice when someone else's career moves faster? Um, here, there's rejoicing over what, what this team has done. This is a great report from Paul. In fact, it was such a good report, but all that had occurred on this missionary trip, it kind of makes you wonder why only the church leaders were invited to hear it. The whole, the whole church should have been invited for this, don't you think? Hmm. And then they said to Paul, middle of verse 20, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those whom have believed, they are zealous for the law. And it would have been that last little phrase there that popped Paul's head up. Zealous for the law gives us something of a clue why only church leadership was present for this meeting. This experience of community now unearths concern. That's the second header there. The, the, the experience of community now unearths concern. Because during Paul's report, and even during their praise to God for what Paul was reporting, I think there was probably a little bit of awkwardness. There's some underlying tension to what's going on in this meeting. Some of the elders present, they might have even displayed on their their countenance like a a distracted, kind of lukewarm response to Paul as if something else is on their mind right now. And you got to remember our context. Jerusalem. Okay, This is the capital of Judaism. Thousands of Jews, the text says, have come to Christ. They've come to believe that Christ is their Savior, that Jesus was and is the promised Messiah, but at the same time, many of them remain, quote, zealous for the law. And here's what you got to appreciate. This was a very unstable time. Uh, middle of the A.D. 50s. We're in A.D. 57 now. The Jewish war is close. It's about to break out. Um, we got a guy named Felix. He's the governor of this region. But Felix, um, a uh, 
a contemporary of him, a historian, said that he ruled with the instincts of a slave. Uh, That is not a compliment, I don't think. Uh, The next year, AD 58, uh, the emperor of Rome, Nero, he pulls Felix out of his governorship and he puts in Portius Festus. And then on top of all of the change and the turmoil that's swirling at the government level, there's also the Sicarii. I do not have time to get into the Sicarii this morning, but please understand that these are assassins. Um, they're, They're Jewish religious fanatics. These are terrorists. Sicari had begun a systematic campaign of murdering Jews who showed sympathy to Gentiles. So you're a bright group. Put yourself now into the shoes of the elder or the elders leading the church in the city where all this is swirling about. And now we also learn that rumors about Paul were swirling too. They claim he attacks Jewish culture and he attacks Jewish tradition. Verse 21, they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Now the material point to be made here is that these rumors about Paul were patently false. In actual fact, Paul was not attacking Jewish culture. He was instructing Gentiles that they were not bound to Jewish conventions but Paul never demanded that the Jews give up Jewish tradition. You'll recall, for instance, that when Paul was in Lystra with Timothy, he had what be done to Timothy? Yeah, he had him circumcised, which is kind of drastic, right? But he did it so that this half-Jew Timothy, half-ethnic Jew, would not become a stumbling block for the other Jews now hearing the gospel proclaimed to them. So what's being said about Paul is untrue, but rumor and gossip can have a vicious longevity. I have been in the course of my own ministry, the target of rumor from time to time. Uh, Pastor Trav teaches this. Pastor Trav believes that. Uh, Rumor can be difficult. So now Paul's back in Jerusalem, and church leaders know well, we're not going to be able to keep his presence here a secret. Pause button. Just to reaffirm, understand, that by this point, Jewish Christians had mostly come to terms with the idea that Gentiles need not become Jews to become Christians. Okay, that was settled years before, if you remember the Acts 15 Jerusalem Council, which is what's alluded to in the uh, letter that's mentioned there in verse 25. The question here is what is, isn't whether Gentiles have to become Jews to become Christians. The question is whether Jews who have become Christians have to act like Gentiles, or in other words, if they have to just give up their Judaism, which would have been a very tough sell. Zealous for the law means they were all kind of touchy about Jewish tradition. 
and the being diluted. So I, mean, I was trying to think through, man, what would be an example of this? I mean, because in our Protestant world, like we tend to not, tradition is not embedded in our identity among Protestants, certainly the same way it would have been in old world Judaism. I guess this would be like me getting hired and coming to Medway Community Church and saying, okay, that's it. If you really want to follow Jesus, you can't do the Christmas candlelight service anymore. You just can't do it. You can't sing the old hymns anymore, right? We cannot be Christian and do a harvest festival on the lawn, you know? There'd probably be some kind of a reaction to that. Um, So you see in all of this, you got community, which unearths a concern, which now leads to a compromise. That's the last header, compromise. Because the million-dollar question is asked in verse 22. What then is to be done? What then is to be done? The rumor is that Paul attacks Jewish customs. Well, Paul, given that a picture is worth a thousand words, why don't you openly participate in a Jewish custom? Remember all that intro stuff about Survivor and the Buddhist temple? Complicated Christianity? This is where all of that begins to hit. Um, We're not going to take the time, but if you were to flip back to Numbers chapter 6, you would learn about something called a Nazarite vow. Um, It's the kind of vow that a Jew would take in response to a particular kindness by God, um, where the individual would devote themselves to purification and they devote themselves to sacrifice. Um, And this is where the whole haircut thing comes in, because what we learn from verse 23 is that there were four individuals who were already involved in one of these Nazarite vows. Um, There was an abstention from meat and wine that was part of this. Um, At the end of the vow, the men go into the temple. They offer a male lamb, a female lamb, a goat, a couple other items. They shave their heads. They cast their hair into the fire. It all seems kind of strange to us, but that's what it was. So here's the thing. The Nazarite vow was a costly vow to take because you had to take off a significant amount of time from work And then also, if you were poor, the purchase of these animals to sacrifice was quite an expense to you. So oftentimes, wealthy individuals would sponsor less wealthy individuals so that they could go through this setting apart of themselves, this whole Nazarite vow. Uh, James and the elders then are suggesting, hey, Paul, (laughs) we've got an idea. You've been hanging out with Gentiles for quite a while in Gentile lands. So really, a lot of folks are going to want you to go through the whole purification ritual for yourself anyway. We've also got these four guys who are pretty far along in the Nazarite vow thing. Why don't you, along with yourself, why don't you also pay for those guys to finish up their vow? Everyone will see you participating in this Jewish tradition, and all will be, well, kosher. (laughs) Are you following? Are you following enough to begin to see the dilemma? Because it's right now at this point that all of the commentators just disagree. For instance, Barclay writes, there can be no doubt of Paul's distaste for the matter because the ceremonial law was dead to him. But then on the flip side, John Calvin writes, Paul, through voluntary subjection, 
sought to win the favor of the ignorant and those not well instructed so that he might do them good. So what do you think? Is it okay for Paul, who in Christ had been freed from the ceremonial law, to now partake in the ceremonial law? You say, well, Trev, we've only been looking at this thing for like 25 minutes. All right. That's about how long Leslie Neese had to decide whether or not she was going to participate in a supposedly non-religious Buddhist ceremony on national television. What do you think? Was Paul right to go back to Jewish customs and practices in hope that he might decrease some of the tension swirling around the city and swirling in the church and swirling around him so that he could unify this Jewish church? Was he right to do that? Or was he selling out? Or are you just getting kind of hungry and hoping I'll wrap it up here? (laughs) Now, I did survey some of the folks that I think probably most everyone in this room, um, if if you're familiar with them at all, these are folks we would trust. Uh, This is James Montgomery Boyce, author of the Cambridge Declaration on the Inerrancy of Scripture. He's founder of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, PCA pastor for um, many, many years at 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia. And he says, quote, what Paul did here was hypocrisy. It was compromise. He was going to offer a sacrifice in front of the very priests who had killed, who had crucified Jesus. This was a turning of his back on the sufficiency of Christ. Might be a tad strong. On the flip side, here's Alistair Begg. I don't think Paul was a grudging participant in this plan. What he did in this context was directly related to two features fundamental to his ministry, reaching unbelievers with the gospel and the unity of God's people. Here's Derek Thomas, pastor and seminary professor at Reformed Theological Seminary. If you press me, I think Paul was wrong. If you press me really hard, I think he was dead wrong. But he loved the church. And you have to admire him for that. He's been put in an almost impossible situation. Some of you might be curious, what do you think, Pastor Trav? Well, I think every guy I just quoted is a lot smarter than I am. (laughs) But since there's no agreement among any of them, I will offer this. It seems to me that Paul's decision here is consistent with what he said elsewhere. Because Paul routinely made himself a doormat in a variety of situations so that others might walk over him to get to Christ. Paul routinely proclaimed his freedom in Christ. 
that he was emancipated from the law, and yet he was not held in bondage to his emancipation, as it were. He would regularly lay down his rights. He would be the doormat if it allowed people to walk over him to Christ. For instance, you remember Paul writing the Corinthians. Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Though not being myself under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Well, that was a whole lot of exposition, which gives me about that much time for application. So here we go. You, um, very, very few of you, will be ever um, invited to participate in a Buddhist ceremony. Um, few of us will be asked to participate in Jewish ceremonial ritual. But this time tomorrow, well, this time tomorrow we'll probably be at home in a snowstorm. <laughs> But this time on, tomorrow, on Tuesday, um, you're going to be somewhere. You're going to be somewhere where you have the opportunity to live on mission. That, that's your front line, right? It's, it's either the homeschool co-op, or it's your, it's your office in Brookline, or it's your classroom, it's your business trip. Where, wherever your front line is, there will be opportunities for you to either show forth Christ or obscure Christ. There will be opportunities for either you to build into the unity of your church or possibly detract from that unity. And sometimes, not every day, not every month, but sometimes the choice between Highlighting Christ and eclipsing Christ is not going to be super clear to us because we are flawed people who live in a flawed world and we see as through a glass darkly. So how do you choose your way when the ways are many? Well, I think this passage is set aside last week's passage because they both have very much the same conclusion. You point your life toward the gospel. As best as you possibly can. You point your life toward the cause of the gospel and you move forward. When you set aside the haircuts and the ceremony and the, the, you know, the tension, I think this text leaves one question ringing in our ears. Are you willing, Christian, to make your life a doormat so that others can walk to Christ. The way that we do that will not always be easy or super clear, but the question is very significant just the same. Are you willing to make your life a doormat so that others may walk to Christ? 
We can disagree with Paul's decision here. He was not flawless. He was not Jesus. The Bible gives us room to do that. We can disagree with Paul's decision here. I do not think that we can disagree with Paul's intent here. He made a choice. And in the weeks to come, as we continue through the text, we'll see what came of it. Thank you for joining us for today's message. Medway Community Church would love to welcome you as our guest one day soon. Our church family meets every Sunday morning for worship and also offers a wide variety of small group and ministry opportunities. To learn more, please visit us on the web at medwaycommunitychurch.org. We look forward to seeing you soon. Washing all my shame.